I'm Steve Backshaw, and you're listening to the Aussie Wildlife Show. <laughs> All right, guys, welcome to the Aussie Wildlife Show. Adrian here, and I'm here, of course, with Steve. G'day, guys. And we're very lucky today to have Dr. David McClellan, wildlife vet from the Adelaide Zoo, and we're sitting here in the Adelaide Zoo. Would you believe it? <laughs> yeah, we are. Good to be here, guys. Um, we're in between a bunch of different aviaries here, so we've got all sorts of bird calls and whatnot floating around our ears, which is yeah, always a nice place to be. It's wonderful. It makes a change from being at AA headquarters because we just get Rocky screaming at us in the distance, and this is... <laughs> Quite good, isn't it? <laughs> Just a different sounding Rocky. <laughs> <laughs> What's, what is that one now that we can hear? That's a bushstone curlew in the rainforest aviary just behind us. Um, but um, yeah, there's a whole bunch of mixed species in that exhibit, so there's probably all manner of calls we'll hear coming across the way as we go. Um, squirrel monkeys just behind us on the other side, and the gibbons are on the island just over the way, which who knows, they might start calling at some point as we're going. So yeah. That's fantastic. It's always a nice soundscape when such diversity of species in a small space around us. So. What a, and what a beautiful spot too. Just it, It's decked out with palms and ferns. and um, I mean, that aviary is over six metres high. Mm. Yeah, and the gardens around the, the whole zoo really are just... The horticulture guys here do such a great job with that. And in many respects, we're just an extension of the Botanic Gardens, which is right, ne- right next door. And there's a long history of collaboration between the two properties. Um, uh, I mean, we're essentially just an extension of... of Botanic Gardens in the Botanic Park into the gardens in the zoo. It's just we've got a few vertebrates and whatnot into the mix. <laughs> it's it's um, an amazing zoo to walk around, just like where we're sat now. We, I mean, you could quite easily think that you're in a rainforest right now. Some yeah. of these plants that are around us, it is bright green, some amazing looking weird shaped <laughs> trees <laughs> and that? things. Yeah, <laughs> yeah the, 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 it's, it's, absu- it's a stunning zoo. Absolutely stunning zoo. Well, it's also known as the Zoological Gardens, isn't it? Yeah, so it's the Royal Zoological Society of South Australia is the sort of um, organisation that, that operates both Adelaide and Monado Zoo, um, which goes back to the 1880s when the society was formed and the zoo first started here. Yeah, Adelaide's been going sort of non-stop ever since and Monado's come on board and, um, yeah, it's a um, kind of nice historical tradition there and the both historical aspects of the zoo here but also some of the um, sort of newer exhibits and, and new innovations that we're starting to see at both sites now um, and for us as a vet department the opportunity to work across both sort of this lovely little oasis in the city that, that we like to call it as well as to be out on the farm in a way out on the savannas of Africa at Monado is a nice sort of mix of a working environment that's for sure. You do some work out at Monado as well? Yeah so we're one vet department across both sites because both zoos are managed by the same organisation and um, the last several years we've had much more sort of streaming of vets so um, there's two vets up at Monado that mostly sort of focus on the collection out there um, and a few of us down at Adelaide that um, are much more focused down here just to provide that more consistency um, for um, managing the health of the collections at each site but we do cross over when we're on call on weekends and we're just wherever we need to be um, and we do do the odd day um, back and forth just to keep our familiarity up with what's happening at the other place so um, yeah we're sort of one big happy family across both sites in the vet department and um, that's yeah nice diversity there as well that's fantastic and it's really great to see a vet that loves what they do yeah absolutely why wouldn't you <laughs> why, why wouldn't you, <laughs> why wouldn't you? <laughs> it would be a terrible job sometimes but the best job in the world other times I'm sure yeah being a zoo wildlife vet was certainly always what I wanted to do coming into my vet degree 
I did my time in private practice before I came into the zoo world and um, there's certainly lots of challenges that come in that setting and most of my friends that I went through vet school with who are in that world are sort of facing some of those challenges that I don't have to deal with. I've certainly got some challenges that, that they don't have to worry about where I'm um, positioned but yeah it's a it's a really great job to be working with so many different species both within and outside the zoo gate so in that respect it's um, a nice place to, to find myself working at. Such a... When you say you've had some challenges what, um, <laughs> what kind of things would, would you expect as a, a day in the life of Dr David McClellan? Yeah. I mean, from an animal point of view, there's um, sort of as many different challenges to get hands on some of the animals that we have as there are species we're dealing with, really. That whether you're a, a squirrel monkey or a tiger or a Komodo dragon or a tree frog with a urinary tract infection, for example, everyone's got a bladder, everyone can get bacterial infection up there, and so you're making the same sort of first principles approach to that um, and basing it on what we know a lot about in dogs and cat medicine for example in horses in chickens those domestic animal um, that we learn a lot about at vet school um, and for the primates we're drawing on human medicine a lot obviously because they're more closely related to the human side of things often than they are to the more domesticated animals that, that we this is the basis of our, our veterinary education at vet school but um, getting your hands on those animals to to then be able to apply that is usually the challenge so sort of anesthesia and restraint and behavioral conditioning and all those sorts of things that enable you then to do what you would normally do if it was a dog or a cat in a way but you're adapting that to suit the species so uh, there might be anatomical differences there might be a tiger that would soon as rip your head off as um as not if you um just put it on the exam table to have a look at it so of course we need to do those um at least in protected contact and a lot of things potentially under anesthetic before we can even start to, to do some diagnostics so um yeah that that training conditioning of, of doing lots of things with the cooperation of the animals is been a big push um for the whole time that i've been in zoos and started before that um as increasingly so there's all sorts of um, different ways that we can push the envelope and and try to do things with animals that would previously have required us to anesthetize them so i guess our giant pandas are probably the the best example we've got of that here where a lot of keeper time that's available to go into training and, and managing those animals so um, they'll present and put an arm out to collect blood we can look at their mouths we can take a rectal temperature we can feel their abdomens we can give them injections we can take blood pressure measurements we can do ultrasound exams on them um, during breeding season keepers are doing testicle measurements on him yeah there's any number of things that we can potentially do um, just with the cooperation of the animal so um, very cooperative isn't he <laughs> <laughs> yeah. wow should do that with tigers as well <laughs> potentially I and mean, there's um up at Monado now we can take blood from um, the cheetahs certainly for a long time and now the lions as well are starting to be able to get blood samples from them from their tails conscious um, are hoping to be able to work towards that here with the, the tigers as well a few other zoos that I've um, worked at and have had involvement with um, have had really great programs for getting blood from all number of species from polar bears from the um, vein that runs down between their digits to be able to get blood from polar bears conscious and things like this so and to do that where it's a positive experience for the animal where they're choosing to participate they're getting positive reward as far as mental stimulation they might get a food reward or some other sort of pay for, for that but it's all with their cooperation they're not being made to do it and so for them to have that relationship with us the trust to do it to come over and um and have some of those sorts of procedures performed without any negative um sort of experience from them really at all um is a really great way to to increasingly be able to manage our animals in that way
Um, that is really good. Because, uh, like you say, there's, there's lots of enrichment for them at that point because you're training them constantly mm-hmm. to try and keep on top of that. And then, yeah, you haven't got to try and, you know, get them put to sleep. Put to and sleep. To sleep. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's wrong. Yeah, and he's that's, that's so a loaded that term. Can, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it is. Uh, just so that you can actually do those things. Yeah. Like, that's so great because, yeah. yeah, enrichment's a big thing now. So, yeah, and even yeah. if we do have to anesthetize them, then to be able to train animals for hand injection so that they'll just push an arm up against the bars to accept an injection of the anesthetic rather than having to walk in and, and dart an animal. So um, you walk into any primate house with a dart gun and it's stressful for everybody. The, the chimps or the orangs or the gibbons or the whoever know exactly what's going on. It's stressful for them. It's stressful for you because um, you want to make sure that it goes right and well. And it's stressful for the keepers who are sort of seeing their animal that they have um, that investment with and care for day to day and have a really close relationship that it's they're seeing their animals go through a really stressful time so um, so we can do any, anything we can do to help to minimise the stresses of that whether we are anesthetising them or being able to do things without anaesthesia is a, um, is, is yeah, really what we're aiming to do um, increasingly um, or more we can with the animals that we're dealing with so, so the keepers as part of their rounds interact with the animals without the injections but just get that that bond happening yeah, in the reward system. Absolutely, yeah. And they're our eyes and ears on the ground. So I we're talking before about the sort of parallels with domestic animal medicine that the keepers are like the owners that the private vet would deal with in their private practice, except that we're all part of the same team on the organisation. So we're much, uh, as a vet, you're much more, um, I guess, more closely invested and part of that um, team that it is... Um, looking after the, the longer-term management of those animals to make sure that their health care is looked after in addition to the, the sort of ambulance stuff where you're looking to get hands on an animal for a problem um, or if we're more looking at doing routine health checks every so often once every few years for some of the larger species um, just so we can pick up on some of those things that we might otherwise miss if we didn't have the opportunity to physically get hands on them open up their mouths and take some x-rays and ultrasounds or blood work or whatever it might be that um, that um, really allows us to monitor the health of the animals um, as they get older. It's a great analogy, isn't it? The keepers mm-hmm. are like the owners. Yeah, and they know their animals better than I do, absolutely, 100%. So um, if they pick up and I might walk past an exhibit and not notice anything, but they'll feel, oh, that animal's usually the first one up for food when I come in, but now they're just straggling behind, so that's not normal for that animal. That might mean that there's something starting to go on with them. Um, yeah, it's amazing some of the subtle signs that the keepers will pick up just because they know their animals so well. And I guess everyone knows if they've got their dog or their cat or their bird or their snake or whatever, that um, if they're just not quite behaving as I usually do and you're a sort of good observant pet owner or zoo animal owner or whatever, um, then they're the sorts of initial signs that might suggest that something isn't quite right. Um, my my parrot's not moving. Home, so, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, with a... Monty Python sketch. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah it's, for those that don't know too, Monato is the open range zoo. Uh, all of us in Adelaide are well aware of it. It's mm. a beautiful park. And um, so a lot of the larger animals slowly have been migrating up to, well, not migrating, but <laughs> taken up there by humans to Monato. Um, so there's the big free range animals up there and a focus on breeding some of the endangered species as well, isn't there? Yeah, there is. Um, both sites, we've got um, breeding programs for a number of threatened species, um, and I guess both sites have their merits as to um, um, to, to which species that lend themselves to. Um, Monado is a huge site. It's 1,500 hectares, so it's one of the largest zoos in area size in the world, really. The Wild Africa expansion, that's 500 hectares of that, essentially, coming to fruition in the next few years, hopefully will... Um, 
be quite an impressive sort of more open range safari experience up there. So yeah, a lot of the hoofstock up there, very sort of African savannah theme, I guess, with carnivores and hoofstock, and but also as you said, a, a large collection of native species, many of which are off display to the public, um, and that includes a whole lot of marsupials, um, some betongs, rock wallabies, um, stickness rats, um, things like that. We've had um, mallyfowl, um, western swamp tortoises are at both Monado and Adelaide Zoo that we're breeding up. There's a threatened species from over in Western Australia. Pygmy blue tongues we've got at both sites uh, breeding up, which is um, a really iconic species in the hurt world from right here in South Australia. Uh, Tasmanian devils, of course, off at Monado are one of the main mainland sites for, for breeding. They're um, mainly population as an insurance population for captive, um, or for the wild devil population, which isn't looking quite as dire as it, it was for extinction um, maybe a few years ago, but that's uh, any number of circumstances could um, could suddenly leave us in a pretty dire situation from where we are with devils. Um, they've declined such a, a huge extent over the last few decades that, um, yeah, that's been a really important program, I think, to be, for us to be part of. They got knocked around with that the devil facial tumour, didn't they? Mm. Yeah, they did. Um, and interestingly, there's, well, it's a, um, a transmissible tumour, so there's only a small handful of examples of transmissible tumours sort of in the biological world that we know of. Um, there's a, um, a venereal tumour in dogs circulates amongst certain um, sort of feral dog populations, including in some parts of northern Australia as well. Um, and um, I think there's some examples in, um, in a rodent, maybe mice, um, some sort of rodents anyway, I believe. Um, and there might be a marine lobster or a mollusk or something that has a transmissible tumour that's been documented somewhere. I've don't quote me on the details on all that, but but so that, anyway, it's, it's quite a rare occurrence for you to get a, a tumour form that then acts as essentially an infectious disease and spreads between animals in the population, um, and that's spontaneously arisen in the devil population, and then because they're genetically quite a homogeneous population, that that tumour is able to spread and is recognised essentially as self, and so... Um, there's not a lot of immune reaction from the devils to the tumour and it just progresses and, um, and ultimately means the death of the, the devils just about invariably. So um, it's an awful disease, um, mostly affects around their face. Um, so it's really disfiguring and ultimately prevents them from feeding and they ultimately probably starve to death is the main cause of death, I suspect. But, but there's such a huge amount of work going on to characterise the tumour, to look into potential treatments, to look at management strategies to, to protect the wild population, as well as having the, the, um, the populations in captivity in the mainland to, um, to have a, a significant number of tumour-free devils in a range of different management ways from um, uh, reasonably intensive management through to the more sort of, I guess extensive management of the devil art over in New South Wales and for that tumour to, to come up um, there's also since been identified a second transmissible tumour that's spontaneously arisen in the same population and I believe that when they've looked at the genetic um, DNA foot fingerprint of the two tumours that one you can see came from a male devil and the other one came from a female devil originally. So um, it's yeah, quite an amazing thing from a biological point of view as well as a pathology point of view, uh, a veterinary medicine point of view really. So, um, And to see the, the multidisciplinary team that comes together to, to investigate and try to deal with something like that from a, a sort of veterinary medicine point of view, the ecology point of view, all of the molecular um, and other lab-based stuff that goes into that, um, whole lot of epidemiologists, so modelling and things like that, similar to what's all been done with the coronavirus at the moment that um, we are talking amidst. Um, yeah, it's just such a fascinating story. Um, to, that would be uh, disappointing to, to have a second tumour yeah, uh, appearing absolutely. with all the work that's been done because we've spoke to Tim Faulkner 
from mm-hmm. Devil's yep, Ark yep, yep. or what's it called now? Aussie Aussie Ark. Aussie Ark now, yep. yeah. Yeah, and yeah, he was he was quite hopeful but not totally hopeful. If there's now another tumour that's come out. That's yeah, I'm not completely up with the details mm. of how widely that's been spread and it was, I think, down further in the southern part of Tassie that that originated in, mm. if I'm remembering rightly. But, um, yes, I don't know if that's been necessarily a significant hit on top of the other one, but um, just for um, that occurrence to occur, it's like lightning striking twice in a way. Mm. It's, um, yeah. It is very unlucky. Um, and that's our largest remaining carnivorous marsupial absolutely yeah. iconic yeah. we had david schultz on the show mm. recently and he talked about the concept of putting devils back into the grampians mm. that's an interesting thought uh, that that fascinated me i hadn't heard that one before yeah there's been a few mainland sites that i've sort of heard bits and pieces about of proposals to potentially put devils back on the mainland um in victoria here in south australia and some other places um i mean historically they were really widespread on the mainland and it's not that long ago in what, geological evolutionary history that they were present here along with thylacines and a whole bunch of other things so um in some parts certainly i guess the the basis for the environment that they were existing in and some of the a lot of the other species that they were cohabiting in are, are still there um a lot of that in some respects has declined a huge amount um as well as the devil's disappearing but um um yeah, in a similar vein to introducing carnivores back into an ecosystem with wolves into a Yellowstone is sort of a textbook example of that where um, you've seen quite positive changes, um, albeit some challenges as well that come along with that, but, but some, some really interesting changes in the landscape just by introducing a top-level predator um, back into the landscape. Um, some of the efforts in the UK with um, some of the wildcats back into Scotland areas like that and the, several examples in other parts of the world where um, introducing a, a large carnivore d- devils are large in respect to, to wolves or, or other sort of large carnivores as we think of them but um, compared to a lot of the, um, the smaller marsupials that they might have sort of scavenged or preyed on then um, yeah it'd be really interesting to see what, what that effect would be in, and I guess their interactions with the introduced carnivores that we've brought out with cats and wild dogs and things like that as well and they eat carrion, so you, you just have to pop off a deer occasionally and you have armies of devils coming and ripping it apart. That'd be great for tourists. <laughs> Don't you think? Don't you think? No. <laughs> I just worry about all the cats and foxes and everything else. That One of the big cats, because they're more like the big mancoon cats that live out in these places, don't they? They'd be able to take on a devil, surely. That'd be a fair fight, I reckon. I reckon it, yeah. But I do wonder whether there would... Well, it's not really my area of expertise, but I do wonder whether there'd be some degree of, of fair competition and even suppression of foxes and cats if you had an animal the size of a devil, similar size to those two species. And um, yeah, it would have been interesting little experiments to be done to, to see what that looked like and potentially had some positive conservation benefits too. So. Yeah, yeah, he said there were subfossils of devils in the Grampians from 600 or maybe 800 years ago, which mm. surprised me because I knew they disappeared after the dingo came over four and a half, five thousand years ago, but I didn't realise they had persisted for that long. Mm. Yeah, I'm not that up to speak with the, the details of you're the timelines. You're of that. a dates man. Well, I didn't this the other day. Yeah, <laughs> oh, all about dates. Yeah. Helps me file some things in my head a bit better. So, one of my favourite animals in the world that you guys have just got in is the Komodo dragons. Mm. How are they going? Uh, good, yeah. Uh, it's been quite 
the um, sort of logistical exercise to um, for us to facilitate the quarantine for um, seven Komodo dragons to come into the region um, from Europe, from Prague, um, which is... Um, uh, previously, there's been some importation of animals in from North America, uh, from Los Angeles, who I think has um, been one of the main hubs for Komodos in North America. So um, to have those sort of two genetic lines now sort of available to um, get some more outbreeding and to maximise the genetic diversity of Komodos in Adelaide or in Australia, rather, and um, and to increase the numbers and, and the, uh, I guess, involvement of the Australian region in Komodos, given they're right on our doorstep so um it's um same as i guess orangutans and sumatran tigers and um a lot of those other southeast asian species that um uh, that australia's become involved with that um komodos is makes perfect sense for australia to be more involved than we um, have been historically so yeah these seven komodos came in and we did their um, um international quarantine here at the zoo we've got a what used to be an aqueous but biosecurity australia approved quarantine facility here so um we can manage those um those imports from overseas um both for us and other zoos that um that need need that done they were here for several months in quarantine um so um yeah our team at the vet department had a a lot of fun um with seven komodos out the back of the health center to to look after most of those have all gone out to other institutions that um, were part of that import agreement um hopefully to to pair up with other animals to start breeding um We've got one female here, younger female here at Adelaide, who's on display now in the reptile house, and um, she's still got a couple of years before she'll reach sexual maturity, but um, we'll certainly look to bring a, a, another male in um, from um, somewhere or other at the time to, to pair her up and um, look to start breeding Komodos here at Adelaide, which would be a really exciting thing. That's so um, But they're phenomenal animals to work with. The intelligence is amazing. Um, I mean, just the size and the to be around an animal like that is, is something else. Like we were talking about earlier, to um, be able to, to condition your animals for um, management, um, both from a veterinary point of view and just a general um, um, keeper management perspective that Komodos lend themselves so well to that. That I mean, you name it, any species you can do this to. There's really good examples of training, conditioning fish and plenty of other reptiles. But Komodos being that, again, top-level predator like devils and others that... Um, are just so switched on and, and are really just always looking to, to, to learn about their environment around them. So, um, yeah, they're, they're, you can do all sorts of things from a training, conditioning point of view for um, both assisting with their veterinary care, from monitoring reproduction cycles in the females where we can ultrasound them to, to follow their ovarian patterns. Um, there's a um, um, project that a group in Europe is starting up to look into... Um, uh, uh, type of reproductive disease that's been a big issue in Komodos. I think you might have talked about in a previous podcast. Um, um, part of that will be collecting saliva samples from Komodos that they're doing over there. So, um, yeah, it, it's super easy to try to train your Komodos up to be able to collect those sorts of samples without having to physically jump on them or anesthetize them or whatever to do that. Um, and then, yeah, the, the, some of the other challenges of keeping in a species like that of their propensities to obesity and so being able to to maintain exercise and um and that and using that conditioning training um keeper interactions to to help promote that um there's so many possibilities that that you can come up with with that so um yeah it's an exciting time from a conservation standpoint to be contributing to that global effort to maintain a, a um that assurance population for komodos um as well as just that um that um 
the ability to share that with the public both in the flesh with a Komodo there in front of you um, to Make tell that question. story and then to to to, um, to work on on that um, that interactions and um, I guess display their intelligence that, that um, they're sitting there behind those eyes that just stare through you sometimes yeah so intelligent yeah, yeah. ridiculously intelligent mm. scarily intelligent <laughs> and kids know what they are absolutely like, all yeah. the kids know Komodo yeah, dragons great yep. animal to have yeah yep. so um, good that you've got them yeah I mean you keep your eyes and ears peeled when you're walking around the zoo and some of the comments you hear kids talking about they're pretty switched on and mm. um, they know exactly what they're looking at and which subspecies it is or how <laughs> know, or what's different about them or something yeah they're certainly observing the world really well but you see ones that seem quite complacent like we've been in with Komodos haven't we Steve and you can yeah. pat them on the head and mm. it also it also seems like there's things that can go wrong absolutely <laughs> I mean we all know monitor food responses it can be terrifying from like a, a small monitor um, yeah, it's funny because yeah, and when you said like you said about like jumping, you know, it's better than training them is better than jumping on the back of them. Mm. I remember a friend of ours, Tim, jumping on the back of Samson, his big lace monitor, mm. which is our closest relation yep. to a Komodo, and that thing just kept walking. <laughs> Tim on it. <laughs> Imagine doing there yeah, with Tim on it. I saw it, it just kept going with Tim on its back, and you sort of think, and a Komodo dragon's a lot bigger than that. Absolutely. Yeah. No, <laughs> so, I haven't. I'm not sure where of anybody who's actually gone in and jumped on Komodos to physically restrain them no. in I'm sure Tim um, Jessup probably has had to in the wild he could probably yeah. tell us what that's like but. yeah our <laughs> concerns from yeah. an institution like this would probably get in the way yeah. um, using um, restraint shoots and things are um, uh, places I have worked with Komodo dragons before and will look to do the same here is having a, it looks like a large magician's box that um, Komodos will go into and then you can um, sort of contain them in there and open up flaps and access all manner of bits and pieces of the, the animal without having to put yourself in direct harm's way but um, but yeah I've worked with people who've been bitten by the lacanthurus monitors and stuff and they don't want to get bitten by them again so no. um, for what a Komodo bite would be um, yeah that, that wouldn't be worth um, no. uh, risking so um, yeah I think respecting those animals um, and not putting yourself in harm's way um, you can still do um, any number of things that, that we talked about before in a protected situation so um, we wouldn't be walking in with our lines to look to take blood samples from them but there's ways that we can utilise um, the facilities that we've got um, and do that in a, in a positive cooperative way with the animal without putting ourselves at risk because even if the animal's not even trying some of those larger species um, can, um, can cause us an awful lot of damage even if they're not intending to so um. You talked about the Komodo dragons can become obese do you think the Adelaide Zoo will ever harness them up and and walk them around the facility <laughs> that ever be a thing that happens we see some zoos do this I would anticipate probably not <laughs> um, I think that um, in the same way as we're not harnessing tigers and walking them around or whatever which some other facilities at least internationally and there's some other places that go in with their tigers but they're not taking them out for walks necessarily um, but um, yeah I think that um, um, elephants has probably been one of the big examples in zoos globally around um, with a general trend of shifting from free contact to protected contact um, with a, a few incidents of keepers being killed by elephants in a free contact situation and again the elephants in some situations have become aggressive but in some situations they're not necessarily maybe intending to kill 
the keeper, but just the size of them and the power that, that they bring um, is really unpredictable as to how that, that might pan out if they get startled by something or whatever. So um, I'm certainly happy from a, um, um, I guess, work health and safety point of view that um, that everyone comes to work and goes home at the end of the day and... Um, if um, we can still achieve a really high standard of care for our animals with a protected contact situation, um, then, um, uh, which I think we can do. Um, we don't need to put ourselves in that risky situation. But I accept that some zoos do do that, um, and um, power to them. That, 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 that opens up a whole range of possibilities in how they manage their animals, which is, I'm sure, very enriching for the animals. Um, I guess it depends on what level of risk that... that your institution chooses to take with that so because some some places around the world offer private encounters mm. in with the komodo dragons and there have been incidences too haven't there yeah so with that access comes risk and it, it depends on where you draw the line with that so i don't necessarily cast negative judgment on people who are doing that as long as the welfare of the animal isn't compromised that they're not forcing animals into situations that they don't feel comfortable with um like the um, like selfie tourism culture of going and getting your picture taken with tigers chained up in various Southeast Asian countries and things, um, um, which I think we do well to not seek to replicate in zoo setting. It's not really what we're about. Um, and um, um, there's any number of ways that you can engage the public without sort of doing those sorts of um, things. Um, but there are some species and some scenarios and ways that you can do it that allow people to have really up close and personal relation, uh, contact with animals. Um, we do a number of behind the scenes tours here at the zoo for people to both Adelaide and Manado zoos to um, for people to have that sort of next level experience, I guess. Um, and um, but there's any number of ways that you can do that in a, in a way that's both safe for the public, doesn't compromise the welfare of the animals, um, and is respectful of the animals too that, that you want to not just look after the welfare of the animals but present them in a in a very respectful way that um, that, um doesn't encourage people to want to have a baby chimpanzee as a pet even if they meet a young chimpanzee in close quarters at Manado. so um that that's is something a, really positive isn't it that the zoos are heading that direction and just people's um mindsets of that that they um they don't want to have that as a pet they do want the best welfare for the animal we we never used to be really about that we, yeah. it's, it's kind of a new refreshing thing to see when I was a kid um, coming to Adelaide Zoo there used to be an oval mm-hmm. and you could ride a little carriage that was towed by the elephant mm-hmm. yeah Colchester Zoo when I was a child you could ride an elephant and that oh. went back that's only 20 years 20, 25 years ago yep, yep. 50 years ago well yeah Sorry. my brother had an asthma attack and had to be rushed to hospital because he turns out he was allergic to him but anyway so allergic note, to he elephants. lived it's alright is that a thing yeah oh. so with all the accidents you think like it's going to trample him it's going to hit him it's going to kill him in these horrible ways he just had an asthma attack <laughs> Yeah. There you go. What a weak brother. What a weak story. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, we used to ride elephants. Zoe and Zola. Elephants at Adelaide Zoo predate my time here, yeah, that's for sure. So <laughs> I can't really speak for that. We still got the old elephant house, which is a um, heritage listed building, so um, that's sort of here forever and a day. But um, we um, hopefully don't have any plans to get elephants back to Adelaide Zoo because we just can't do them well enough in the small space we've got. So. Yeah, and that's good and that's the best thing for the animals and there's always going to be the people that come and say I went to the zoo and I didn't see an elephant and well you know, <laughs> yeah. what did you see though you know? 
Mate, you get to work with a far bigger repertoire of animals than most vets. Do you, is there any animals that you've come to really, really just sort of endear to you? Yeah, um, it's certainly a hard question to answer because every animal that you work with certainly brings its own sort of special character or there's something really fascinating about them or you've had a special connection in some way with an individual or a group of animals. Um, I guess those sorts of animal individuals or species that you end up having a lot to do with or you get involved with research projects or field projects with or something that I guess you develop a greater understanding of that, those, that species or that population and so you do develop a greater affinity than, than some that you haven't had that same connection to. So yeah, I guess things like um, the region parrots here that we've done work with uh, up in the Riverland or um, the rock wallabies that we've done work up in APY lands or um, those sorts of species that you um, get more involved with um, out in the field that, um, that really tick boxes for you. Some of the um, species we've done a lot of work up with and disease investigations and, um, and, and work to, to support the populations of like a lot of the tortoise species, radiated tortoises um, that we imported into Australia from a confiscated group in Southeast Asia a few years ago and all of the story that that represents in Madagascar of um, just the massive collection of tortoises from the wild to support the pet trade and the black market in that internationally and um, just the scale of that and to sort of be part of that um, uh, with a few of those animals coming into to the south the, the Australian uh, zoo community um, including here at the zoo where we had a lot of them initially for their part of their quarantine uh, when they first arrived into Australia um, and to disease screen those animals to make sure that there are diseases that aren't coming in with those tortoises that might really impact other tortoise species that are in our zoo collection or indeed native turtles in um that we're on the edge of the torrens river here and there's all sorts of potential for spillover for for disease between animals um um and to spend a lot of time sort of investigating into that um yeah tortoises i guess i have a bit of a soft spot for for them um internationally some of the species that i've worked with i did my residency at toronto zoo um before um i was here at adelaide and um yeah, getting involved with um, with Massasaga rattlesnakes over there, or Vancouver Island marmots, or um, moose, or things, species like that. That that um, yeah, are just such phenomenal animals to, uh, and a bit outside the box for, for those of us growing up in Australia to um, to interact and anesthetise moose, or put radio transmitters into rattlesnakes, or um, putting radio transmitters and data loggers into little wolf cubs up in Algonquin Provincial Park, and um, and to contribute to a sort of broader effort to, to conserve those um, those populations um, in collaboration with ecologists doing that work is, um, is really rewarding and so those sorts of species that you you get involved in more particular projects like that um, uh, so yeah there's not one but that's a good answer though, so yeah your, your favourites are the ones that you've really helped to save in all sorts of ways yeah so the, the, I guess yeah, the ones you get a, a better understanding with or you've, you've spent more time with and so you feel a greater affinity to um, and there'll be some individual animals uh, um, old tiger we a sequel we euthanised not long ago um, here at the zoo that, that had been around at the zoo for an awful long time we'd um, dealt with with her in a um from a veterinary point of view in a range of different health issues over her course of her life and then to to see her then come to the end and to make the decision to euthanize her as she was starting to really struggle with some some age-related changes that um um and to work through that with the connection that the keepers have with her who've worked with her for a long time um the hippo um there was in his 50s well into his 50s that um 
had was sort of been at the zoo for longer than any of the other staff here at the zoo. Um, but some staff here have worked with him for decades, and to um, to work through that, um, and to come to the end with an animal who's older than you are, sort of thing, and you. Um, um, yeah, some of those species that are such long-lived animals and you ha- build up that rapport over time because you work with them for such a long time. Um, it's a bit over 12 years that I've been at the zoo in Adelaide now, so it's um, yeah, a fair time that you've worked with some of these animals consistently over that time. And that would affect everybody, even the people that work in other sections of the zoo, they would all know those Absolutely, animals. Yeah. And indeed the public and whatever, who you sometimes don't necessarily perceive quite what relationships some of um, a big chunk of the public coming through the zoo Adelaide community has a relationship with a particular species of the um, the flamingos that we used to have here at the zoo or um, Brutus the hippo we talked about or um, even some of the birds that are in aviaries that um, that people might not necessarily think of as being the the types of animals that that people would naturally connect with compared to a hippo or a tiger or something but um, but yeah there, there's certainly birds in different aviaries that that people will develop a really close relationship with and um, are regular visitors to the zoo and will always go and like check out on how this cockatoo or that animal or whatever is is doing Um, um, they've all got their favorites and sometimes you don't necessarily appreciate just what an individual animal what its broader appeal or what its meaning is to to different people who are visiting the zoo as well as the keeper staff and the front office staff and whatever who are all sort of in the the, in it together and and all sort of contributing to to looking after the animals at the zoo and the broader conservation aims that um that, that that i guess stems to so it's amazing to think that there's probably grandparents were bringing their grandchildren in to see the hippos that they yeah. may have seen when they were younger. Absolutely, yeah. That's, yeah. that's pretty amazing. And the flamingo that we... The, um, yeah. It's a few years we, since we euthanised him, but he came to the zoo in 1933 and um, <laughs> wow. was sort of in, well into his <laughs> 80s probably by the time that, that we made the decision to euthanise him. So, yeah, there's certainly generations, as you say, of South Australian families who would have come and yeah. seen the same bird. Um, that's amazing. Um, was he the last flamingo in Australia? Yeah, it was. Um, uh, there are some flamingos that have been brought into Auckland Zoo now in New Zealand. Um, and as that group breeds up, um, that, I guess, opens the possibility that we could potentially draw from that group in New Zealand to get flamingos back into Australia again. Is it easier for Australia to get animals from New Zealand than the rest of the world? Yeah, um, generally speaking, that's true. Um, there's starting to be a few more, um, um, I guess, disease risk assessments done, which... Um, allows for guidelines to be put out from the Australian government, um, Biosecurity Australia, what used to be ACRIS, um, that set um, sort of what guidelines there are as to what species you can bring from which parts of the world they will agree to bring them in from depending on the disease history of those parts of the world, um, what sort of testing might need to be done ahead of time or after arrival, things like that. Um, And with things like avian influenza and Newcastle disease, especially those two, really just put a lid on... um, importing birds at all really into Australia except for some really limited examples um, um, for commercial chickens and things like that and a few other examples but um, but that's starting to, to work through as we get a better understanding of the range of infectious diseases that are present in birds how we can um, can screen for those um, uh, so 10 years ago when I started at Adelaide for example there's um, a disease in birds, that, in parrots, that at the time was called proventricular dilatation disease. So their stomach would essentially distend, um, and it was an in, 
uh, inflammation around the nerves, around the, the lining of the stomach that meant the stomach didn't contract properly. Um, it affected other parts of the body as well, but it was the proventriculus, which is like the fore stomach in birds, that was the, um, the site that it most commonly affected. And we didn't know what caused it. It looked like it was probably a viral disease, but we didn't have any real proof that that was the case um, and then in the last oh, I guess maybe 10 to 15 years we've really started to nail what that was and now we know that it's a bornavirus that causes that um, in parrots and there's a few other species of birds in geese in North America they've picked up bornaviruses and them causing similar lesions and um, so our knowledge on all this stuff is increasing all the time um, for your reptile sensibilities then um, uh, a similar disease in snakes called inclusion body disease mm-hmm. that um, for a long time we didn't know what caused it um um and now we're, we're pretty confident now that there's an arena virus specifically that's associated with that type of of disease in snakes um there may well be a multiple different types of, of um, infectious agent that can cause a similar looking disease but um uh, but there's a range of of, um, of similar viruses that that cause these sort of respiratory neurological type diseases in snakes that we're really starting to get a handle on now so um that does help inform the, the risk assessments of not wanting to introduce something into Australia that that, um, that we don't have. Um, some of these th- uh, diseases we've talked about um, are starting to ap- or have appeared in um, in um, private um, aviculture circles and and also in a few zoos. Um, the fact that we're really looking into the the, the health of the animals in zoos. Um, any animal that gets sick, we're investigating. Any animal that dies, we do a complete post-mortem examination on so we can really get a handle on uh, why that animal died, but also what is what do we find in that that might have implication for other animals in the zoo and how we manage them. Um, that... Um, um, at least in a zoo setting or with a responsible pet owners that they're open to investigating what those are um, and then try to be able to control any of those disease outbreaks that do might occur or, or when we identify when those diseases are occurring. But there's a lot of places that, that aren't places that or keepers, I guess, owners that don't do that. Um, and that poses some pretty big risks for, um, um, for our native um, animals populations as well that if we get um, this avian citizen bornavirus that gets into uh, wild parrots um, or if um, Pacheco's disease which is a herpes virus that, that is, um, um, can cause a range of disease syndromes in, in, um, in a range of citizen species that the risk for those uh, diseases getting into our native citizens uh, populations is, is really significant especially if you think of things like orange belly parrots which we breed here at Adelaide Zoo or swift parrots um, um, for example some of those really threatened species that um something like that could just mean the end of them in the wild um absolutely so um it behooves us to be to be on top of all of those sorts of things um and um the way that that our increasing knowledge then allows i guess to swing that back around to where we started this um of being able to import things like flamingos or some other species to be part of international breeding programs for say I don't know, there's no plans for it, but let's say Spix macaws came on our radar to, to maybe bring some of them into Australia to contribute to that global population for them. Then the fact that we can screen for things like that PDD disease or for Pachecos or whatever, that we can look to try to, to keep some of these things out of Australia, um, albeit that, that both of those are likely circulating um, in Australia. But, um, but the fact that we can be more on top of some of those diseases that have really been at the heart of excluding imports from an abundance of caution and being fairly risk adverse and for good reason. Um, well, that opens the door to getting, like you say, different species, like maybe like toucans and things. 
Yeah, um, there's certainly been some bird keepers here who have expressed a lot of personal interest in, in bringing out some species like that. Um, I guess there's a balance, isn't there, to, to um, what's going to be meaningful from a conservation standpoint that, that increasingly, um, certainly over my time at the zoo here in Adelaide and likely before that, that there's increasing scrutiny over what species are we holding here and for what reasons do we have them um so um we've got a species selection tool so that at least we can cast some degree of a filter over the nature of the species that we hold that those either have a a really great um sort of conservation story to tell or a part of a really coordinated breeding program from a a regional or an international um, captive breeding effort to maintain that species um uh, as an assurance population for wild populations or as part of a reintroduction program, um, such as the Western Swamp tortoises or orange bellies that we're actively breeding to release into the wild. Um, but whether there is a, um, um, for displaying a certain type of ecosystem that's endangered or to tell a story about palm oil or something along those lines where a range of species that, um, that might not necessarily be threatened themselves but uh, really well lend themselves to, to really good welfare in a captive setting um, and tell a really good story as part of a, a sort of collection of species to to, um, to um, portray that, that story about um, palm oil or sustainable timber or um, whatever it might be um, that, um, but yeah, so the um, being, I guess, a lot more scrutinising, I guess, of the, the types of species that we keep and not just trying to keep as many of many different types of species, uh, which I guess historically has been um, the way that, that zoos have been. Um, the, just the diversity of species that Adelaide Zoo has kept in the times gone past is amazing to have um, like a whole lot of North American species of beavers and wolves and things to have... Um, I believe, had a Javan rhino at the zoo in times gone past and um, um, some species that you, you really don't see that often that have passed through. But if you're not doing them um, in a coordinated way and you've got one animal at the zoo in Adelaide and nobody else is doing them in Australia, then it it's, um, really doesn't lead anywhere. You're not breeding that animal to sustain that population um, from a captive standpoint, let alone the conservation imperatives of that, um, unless you're really linking in with, with regional partners and with um, an international breeding programs in some respects. So, um, yeah, I think that's a, a, a really one of the, the many trends that, that zoos are um, sort of shifting in a new direction for, um, which is really encouraging to see from, a, um, which all leads to, to animal welfare to back up that, that conservation aims. So that's, yeah, that, and yeah. that they are the main and most important reasons, all of those conservation issues and things. But does there ever come to a point in a zoo like this that has got to think commercial to a certain extent? Do you, is there yeah. certain animals that you just have to have at a zoo? Um, to a degree, I, I suppose, um, that there are, that people coming to bring their kids to the zoo or whatever might expect to see elephants or rhinos or those sorts of mm. larger species. Um, I think there's also a lot of um, um, attention on zoos as to how we're looking after the animals that we've got, and rightly so, and the people who are working within zoos are probably the ones who are the most attentive to that dilemma because we want to make sure that the animals that we're looking after are, are kept as well as we possibly can. So we're constantly looking to make improvements to that all the time. So if people are disappointed that we don't have an elephant at Adelaide Zoo to go and look at, but then the reasons why we don't have elephants at Adelaide Zoo are explained, then most people are going to be really accepting of that. Um, and to not have as many hoofstock here at Adelaide Zoo as what we have historically, where we did have bison and oryx and zebra and some of these, um, 
to relocate a lot of that to Manado. Um, still retaining some animals here that we feel like that we can do do well uh, in the the smaller cities that we've got. Um, but to um, to really think about how are we looking after the animals that we're displaying, most people are going to give the zoo credit, I think, for um, for putting the animals first and to displaying um, the animals that are best suited to each site. At each site, um, there's some crossover, and there always will be um, some species that do um, do pretty well in, in both sorts of settings. But um, uh, and to a degree, yes, there is some. There has to be some eye to, to what types of animals people want to come in um, to look at when they come to the zoo um, because for a zoo like Adelaide which is a not-for-profit conservation society that um, a big part of our operating budget comes from people coming through the gate um, and a lot of the conservation work that, that we are doing and would like to do more of in the future is um, in large part tied in with that. So there has to be an eye for that, um, but I don't think that that has to necessarily be in conflict with those other aims of maintaining good welfare or doing um, good conservation work or um, looking at, at having fewer species that you do better from both a welfare and a conservation standpoint. I think all of those things are things that most people coming into zoos are passionate about themselves and, and are in favour of. So. Um, so there might be a few loud voices that, that are disappointed that we don't have elephants and maybe there's some who won't come to Adelaide Zoo because we don't have an elephant, but I suspect that they're probably in the minority. Um, and, um, um, and I think the... I mean, some of the surveys that I've seen coming around of, of other zoos where they've looked at where do people go when they visit zoos and they might be intending to come and see a giraffe when they come to the zoo, but they actually spend more of their time in out front of bird aviaries looking at all the colour and activity and everything going on with some of these other species that we don't automatically think of as being the ones that bring people through the door. Being mostly reptiles, surely. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. that's certainly <laughs> about, uh, this guy. The pygmy blue tongues. It's just a hole in the ground, isn't it? <laughs> Scrub pythons and stuff are the ones that's that are it, yeah, the door. Yeah, sure. <laughs> I think Steve McKechnie had a, 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 he said something about that. I can't exactly remember what he said, but he, he talked about, you want the, the sounds, which yeah, if you stop now, but yeah, you can certainly hear the sound. Yeah, something brightly coloured. Um, yeah, he, I can't remember exactly his criteria, but ticking a few of those boxes too. And I think you're right. And I think uh, most people would probably be vocal if you did have an elephant in this day and age, which is fantastic. I think, yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. And the zoos that do have elephants are certainly keeping them amazingly well now. Mm. They're all in really good functional social groups. Um, at least in North America, I know they have to be breeding groups now. If you're going to maintain elephants um, ongoing, you need to be in a position to be breeding elephants because that is a big, important aspect of their, their social structure and, and, and life experience and, and having an enriching life as an elephant group. So, um, yeah, I think that, that all of that is for the better. Um, and the, the research going on into welfare assessment is um, ever-increasing. We're learning more about those sorts of things all the time. Um, we've got two honours students through the University of Adelaide and the zoo here um, currently looking at um, welfare assessment in reptiles and a few different types of, um, of reptiles as their honours project. So, is that um, Jordan Triggs? Yep. Yeah, she's one of my presenters. Yeah, right. There you go. Okay. Jordan. Yep. Shout yeah. out to Jordan. There you go. Yeah. Um, her and Brianna are, are doing a really great job with a, a survey that we've sent out internationally to, to get feedback on a range of different animal-based measures and the validity and practicality of those as, as um, animal-based welfare assessment measures. Um, we've um, 
uh, got a welfare assessment tool that we apply to every exhibit in the zoo once a year now. Um, and um, the, um, the more that we start to look into it, the more that we can um, really start to tailor a sort of generic animal welfare um, tool to the um, diversity of taxa that, that we have. That, um, is it valid to really use the same tool to assess the welfare of an orangutan or a macaw to a death udder or a land tortoise or something um it's um some of the, the fundamental principles are certainly there but if you can tailor it down and to start to really critically think of uh and looking at what the animal is telling you because ultimately you want to know what's the animal's experience of the world around it that is ultimately dictating its welfare um its effective state we often call that or their emotional state um, that can be really challenging to perceive what a reptile is thinking or a fish or a um, whatever whereas some of the primates and, and um, citizens, the parrot species or um, um, Komodo dragons we might sort of feel like we can better put ourselves in their head and think about what they might be seeing or elephants we've just been talking about um, but, um, but just because it's difficult doesn't mean we shouldn't try um, and the way that we know about looking after a lot of these reptile species about reptiles um they're certainly always getting better all the time as far as those lighting and temperature and humidity and all those sorts of physical inputs that we can apply um but to look at what does that ultimately mean for what the reptiles experience of the world is again that's really challenging but i think we behooves us to try to, to look at what are those animal-based measures that we can try to interpret behaviours and, and get a bit of a sense back from the animal as to, that it's perceiving its world in a positive way, not just that we think it is because we're providing it with X, Y and Z so that it's at a good temperature, it's got a good diet it's got all those sorts of things are really important and you don't get that um, positive emotional state without having all those other things ticked um, but to be able to do all of those things um, is... Um, constantly where we're I guess trying to strive for with all the species that we keep at the zoo from fish up to rhinos and all in between so it's a great thing to endeavour to do isn't it mm. I know you've touched on a few examples but the zoo is involved in a lot of conservation programs that the public may not be aware of just walking through looking at the exhibits did you want to talk about any of those um yeah, I guess, I mean, orange-bellied parrots are a species that we've got on display um, here at the zoo, um, and we've been involved in a captive breeding program for oh, at least a decade now um, in collaboration with a, a few other zoos in Victoria um, and a government breeding facility in Tasmania. Um, they're uh, one of two migratory parrots in the world uh, that breed down in the southwest of Tassie and uh, fly up into Victoria and historically at least into the southeast of South Australia. Um, and their numbers have just plummeted over the, uh, the decades. And um, there's, well, at least a few years ago, there are fewer than 20 birds that were returning from migration. And that number has really been supported um, and kept going by uh, releases into the wild um, that have been... Um, um, drawn from the captive breeding populations that, that us and others have been part of um, the um, uh, it's been a bit of a, a, a challenge in many respects for um, trying to, to release enough birds that, that you have confidence that you're maintaining that wild population because if we lose them then re-establishing that migratory patterns is potentially going to be really challenging if not impossible if there aren't birds doing that on the ground um, at the same time as trying to build up the captive population to a large enough um, 
number that it's sustainable in the longer term. And so just in the last few years, we've reached uh, a sort of nice sustainable level of, of numbers in captivity. So that means we can now start to be... Um, uh, be producing enough or more birds to be putting into the wild and there's a number of different sort of newer ways that are, that's being approached of releasing birds onto the mainland or releasing different age type birds um, and then following those to see how they go with them um, uh, with their breeding um, there's some efforts now to start um, trialing with some, putting some radio trackers to see how um, those birds are faring um, after they get released to, to, so we can always be learning on that front so um, yeah some programs like that um, um, the Western Swamp Tortoise we talked about before where in collaboration with Perth Zoo of, um, of um, breeding up and releasing those animals um, monitoring their reproduction cycles and, and really trying to optimise that um, in collaboration with the, the, the partners over in Western Australia. Um, they were interesting projects. So. That was our most endangered reptile at one point. Maybe, yeah. maybe still is. Yeah, it could well yeah, be right. still. Yeah. Um, lovely little turtles. They're really great uh, little animals. Um, um, and so, yeah, both Adelaide and now Monado. Uh, I've got a, a number of tubs up at Monado off exhibit, um, off display now, um, that... Um, um, are also breeding really well out there now um, and um, yeah from a veterinary point of view I guess um, looking after the health of those animals to make sure that a that, that we've got nice fit, healthy animals that are, are breeding um, and then having a good quality of life where they are but also that we're not risking releasing any diseases that they might acquire in captivity if we're not mindful of that um, that could have the big impacts on that wild populations like we talked about earlier so um, any time we get like a, a f um, um, bit of an increase in mortality in that or um, um, identify something that might be a bit novel that we haven't seen before in that species then we um, are really investigating that really heavily uh, we've now got um, a pathologist that does work with us here at the zoo now um, um, so working really closely with her to to um, to really thoroughly investigate um, um, diseases um, and it's great to have that happening on site whereas before we were, were sending that um, that material off and and, um, and um, to various partners outside so to, to have that one-on-one -on -one internally is great um, and then to, to work with the other um, institutions with Zoos Victoria and and some other uh, institutions that have got orange bellies as well to um, pull resources and to, to learn from each other and to um, um, and to come to agreements as to exactly what is the right way to be managing these birds in captivity and to be screening them for any diseases or um, um, how we manage that release from a, from a healthcare point of view um, and I guess that that um, the disease management point of view is, is a big part of, um, of our day-to-day -day job um, from a captive management point of view, but also that, that captive breed for release program. Um, yeah, there's all, all manner of aspects talk, that go into Talking about <laughs> things that the public don't see, I mean, the whole disease management, it's just... It's, yeah, they don't see any of that. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Um, I mean, our, our vet hospital is on display, our little window into our treatment room, so people can see if we've got an animal on the table, and we'll, um, uh, um, as much as we can, try to, um, to talk to people about what it is that we're doing and why we're doing it, and, and, that, um, and that's been, yeah, anything from we've got an animal that comes up with a broken leg or something um, um, like that, to we're doing health checks on of um, wallabies as part of their preventative medicine program and all what that means um, we did serval health checks um, last week where we we're vaccinating our servals with the standard cap vaccinations um, as well as doing a range of, of blood tests and x-rays and ultrasounds and things that um, helps us build up a, an overall picture of that animal's health um, and gives us a lot of baseline information that we can then draw on for that individual as it gets older as well as contributing to, um, um, to other servals that we might have 
to come back to to compare to um, information we've collected on previous animals and that information shared now globally um, our record keeping system is an online system that most zoos around the world are using um, and they're pooling a lot of that say blood test information together so you can bring up um, instead of the, the two servals we've got here at the zoo then you can bring up potentially a couple of hundred servals that people have done blood work on and get an idea of what those ranges are um, so that you can just that, that sharing of data and the network that you're a part of I guess that you're not just the vet here at the zoo within the walls that you're part of this much larger network of, of vets working in the zoo and in, uh, in the wild um, both here in Australia and internationally with um, a whole lot of, of um, well, um, email listservs that you can pose questions to other people to see if anybody else has dealt with, I don't know, unifact infection in a capybara to hark <laughs> back to early on in the thing. If, um, has anybody used this drug in something because I've got this animal with such and such a problem and I've not used it, but if anybody else has, that'd be great. And often you get a few little um, emails back about I've used it in a similar species or something. So, um, every day you're kind of dealing with stuff that... that might not have ever been done before um, potentially on the the species that you're dealing with so um so yeah to, to be part of that broader community um uh is is really gratifying um and not just from a disease management and managing the health of the collection in, in the captive setting but monitoring the what's happening in the disease in the wild as well um that we don't get a, a, a heap of wildlife compared to like a, a Hillsville sanctuary or an australia zoo wildlife hospital or something that are really well set up to do that um but we do get a reasonable a number of, of wild animals coming through our hospital as well um and the um the opportunity that that has um to give us a bit of a window into what diseases are in the wildlife that are around us at the zoo that might have impact on our collection but also might have a, um, a sort of more broader conservation value um, or might impact other parts of Australia's economy as well. Um, there's certainly some crossover, uh, lots of crossover examples of disease going between wildlife and domestic animals, wildlife and humans. Um, well, the coronavirus that we're living in at the moment is a really great example of that. So... Um, we're as always sort of way, looking at how we Im improve the, the level of this is being done but Wildlife Health Australia which is a now independent but um, government supported body um, that um, has a number of different programs to try to keep a monitoring of um, what wildlife disease is happening around the country and that's done through universities through a number of zoos including us uh, the Zoo South Australia um, a few private practitioners that see a lot of wildlife work um, and a number of other agencies and they're sort of pulling information from all of those as to how many wildlife cases are you seeing are you seeing any of these particular diseases that we know we want to be looking out for are you seeing anything that's just out of the ordinary that oh we haven't seen this before or the last 10 years this is what we're seeing in rainbow lorikeets or kangaroos or whatever it might be now we're suddenly seeing some kangaroos that are presenting blind or something that might be just a bit of out of the ordinary that, that prompts a discussion that then links nationally so that people in other parts of the country might oh yep now we've know that over in victoria they've been seeing this happening in um kookaburras or owls or blue tongue skinks or something um we might want to be on alert if we're seeing those species to, to pick up that um and so the more that we're looking into that, then the more we're alert, I guess, to, to novel things that might start to be coming in. Um, 
and including some zoonotic diseases. So we talked like coronaviruses come from a, likely a horseshoe bat, the same as some of the previous SARS viruses that we've seen. Um, there are a few bacterial diseases that circulate around Australian wildlife that are potentially zoonotic, um, and we've identified some more of those just in the last few years in possums. Um, um, Wayne Boardman that you spoke with earlier about his bat work and with lysovirus and then hendrovirus um, sort of apparently emerging, although it's likely been in bats for millennia and it's just now that we've um, had the right species mix with horses and bats and humans all living in the same area that there's been the opportunity for that to spill over and, and cause a disease issue in horses and, and humans as well. So, um, yeah, it's not just the animals within the zoo, it's not just the particular conservation projects that we're doing with, but I guess we're, we're another brick in that wall of, of, um, of wildlife disease surveillance that has conservation as well as um, um, sort of domestic animal livestock and human health implications as well. So this term One Health, that I'm not sure if um, that's come up in any of your previous podcasts, but um, the fact that the, the health of the environment and the wildlife within it, the health of our domestic animals, whether that's dogs, cats, livestock, chickens whatever um and the health of us are all really intimately related and um we do well to optimize the health of all of those different um cohorts that coexist with each other so well said <laughs> there's so much information that you must get every week so much new information it must be you're so switched on i have to say you're married to jenny your wife she's a vet as well yes do you get home and do you guys just talk about just whack on like you know whatever the latest series is or (laughs) or does it continue when you get home um bit of both um one of the problems of coronavirus one of many problems of coronavirus but this is a bit of a light-hearted problem is um that a lot of the conferences that um we often try to get to are now online um same as a lot of things of now happening through Teams or Zoom or, or whatever. Um, so some of the international meetings that I only get to once in a while are now online and so they're available to attend, which means that you can go to everything at the moment, which is a real problem for yeah both Jen and I who have interest in um, sort of zoo animal medicine, some of the exotic pet stuff of like reptile and avian vets. Um, we certainly draw a lot on the, um, the expertise and the knowledge base that people who are doing pet bird and pet reptile stuff, that feeds back into what we how we manage our reptiles in in the zoos and i'm sure vice versa and the wildlife disease group so that's vets and um ecologists and a a whole range of other disciplines who are um, interested in wildlife health um who are looking into all manner of um, different aspects of of, um of disease in wildlife and so all of these different sorts of conferences that are happening this year online um, means we don't have to to decide which conference we might look to travel to but um it means we're a bit um trying to do everything so yeah in the last sort of few weeks we've been looking at um, sessions of the australian vet association conference they've got a conservation biology group as well as an unusual and avian pet group so looking at some of the presentations that they've had coming through and um in some of the um european zoo wildlife vet conference has just been online at um very inconvenient hours for me in adelaide (laughs) that's prompted a fair bit of out of work discussions and whatever at home for sure but no we we do um get away from work mentally at the same time um two kids that certainly provide that (laughs) escape from work absolutely outside of here you're full-time primate keepers at home that's right (laughs) you um do think when you're managing um um sort of how you go about training conditioning or managing that um, emotional or mental health of animals and that the way that you approach that um 
has a lot of parallels with parenting and things when like that. When you <laughs> clicker training, you yeah, take that home yeah, now. <laughs> yeah, um, I know one vet who took the same approach to, to raising her own child when it was a baby to what she'd done when she was hand-raising possums. Had a little <laughs> hand-rearing sheet and wrote down how much milk it had had and when it had fed and when it had so, um, <laughs> Just picked up a standard hand-rearing sheet and ran with it. So, um, That's great. Mm. Just pop it in the pouch. That's right. <laughs> There's so many parallels between all sorts of aspects of what we do. That's for sure. You obviously love your job this is it fun, seems yeah. like yeah your dream job in a lot of ways the way yeah. you're talking everything's positive it's awesome yeah what Schultz might have said is but um you're a bit of a jack of all trades sometimes and perhaps master of none but just that diversity of um, um of the different range of things that, that you're able to get involved with through um a job like this which is on the face of it um looking after individual animals in a zoo but um, it's obviously a heap broader than that um, and there's all manner of different opportunities to get involved with them and we just touched on some of the research projects that we've done through but um, doing all sorts of things on that front as well as all different types of research projects that we've had going with mostly with the vet school and getting vet students from up there involved in different things looking at microbiomes of tortoises or um, doing some drug testing to look at what's the most appropriate um, doses of an antibiotic to use in turtles which often without that sort of information then it's a bit of an educated guess and um, so we're always looking to, to extend that out um, doing the reptile welfare assessment like we talked about before looking at um, some of the risks of um, soaked and spouted seed of bacterial toxins and other things that might be growing in that um, when we're feeding out to breeding parrots yeah, there's been a whole range of different things. Every day prompts, could prompt a new research project or something else that we could look into and find out more about and, and um, ultimately allow us to do what we do that much better. So, um, yeah, it's always sort of a bit like being on the frontier in that respect, that, you know, always looking out for that thirst for knowledge and, and taking advantage of any opportunities you can to, to set up another little project and, and progress that um, in some other way. So. Is there ever a time when you've got an animal coming in well, you know something's booked in tomorrow or something and it's sort of, you want to pull a sickie? <laughs> <laughs> Easy um, answer would be no, but I don't think that's the way you're going to go. No, I don't think so. Um, I mean, the challenge of, of dealing with something that um, you don't really know what the answer is, that's kind of yeah. part of the fun of the job. I mean, dealing with the range of species and some of the other aspects we've talked about, but just that... Um, that problem-solving aspect, which is any, which is being a vet in a way. Um, that whatever practice you're doing, you're, you're that problem-solving and um, uh, and it's trying to come up with the answer. And I guess that sense of satisfaction when you find the answer and um, and find a, a, a way to deal with that um, that suits the the animal, that suits the group that it's in, that suits the keepers and how they're managing the animals. Um, that, that that's um, really rewarding. The, Oh, from a, a thing that, that keeps me up at night, I don't know. Um, I guess with any dangerous animal that you're dealing with, that, that you always are a bit amazed at what a couple of meals in a dart syringe can suddenly make it safe to walk in with a tiger or a um, chimpanzee or something like that. Um, that constantly I sort of step back and just be quite amazed at what a few little meals of fluid can um, can allow you to do. That sort of first I don't probably get it as much as I used to, but that first little moment when you first open the door of an anesthetised tiger or something, that, um, until you know that it's properly asleep and isn't going to be just playing dead and 
playing asleep and laps up at you or something. But um, walking in, going um, trust the drugs, trust the drugs, <laughs> trust the drugs. <laughs> probably actually came up in discussion just a few days ago here, but probably my least favourite animal to dart are the gibbons because um, they're they're small, they're fast, they're super smart. It's such a small target that you're aiming for. Um, yeah, that's that's a real um, sort of. Um, sharpshooting kind of (laughs) you've got to have your eye and have your wits about you with that and um, coming back to the training condition we talked about before we're starting to train all those gibbons we've got here up for hand injection so that we don't have to dart because there's also a significant risk that that things might go um, not go right and um, if you hit the animal that bit too hard or just in the wrong spot or in the wrong part of its body or something that you could really seriously injure the animal so um, we said as much as there is a, a sort of fun aspect to, to, to getting the dark gun out. There's also a, um, a bit of um, um, sort of trepidation and respect that you have that mm. it's in a way like any other firearm and um, and we do need to, to be mindful that we could cause some really significant damage to, to some of the animals that, that we're using it on. So um, And the, the stresses that come from that when you're dealing with an animal as intelligent as a gibbon. So, um, yeah, darting gibbons is probably one of my least favourite things to have to be faced with at the zoo. Oh man, that's a great t-shirt. <laughs> darting gibbons is one of my least favourite things. You know, the senses you don't hear often enough. Um, <laughs> you, you wouldn't want to get them up in the tree, would you? Because they could they could fall asleep up in the tree and fall out. Yeah, um, I mean we've had occasionally we've had a gibbon escape um, or one of the langers get off the islands where they are. Um, that if we've got animals that are breeding up then once they get to a certain age then the parents looking to kick them out so that the next one's coming through so um that's always a bit of a a, a tentative balance to know when the right time is to pull the animal out um to make sure that it's got somewhere else to go that you're not going to leave it by itself that it's got a partner that's been earmarked by the stud book keeper to, to to link up with somewhere else um but if you leave it too long then there's always a risk that that group's going to evict the animal and they could potentially kill their offspring if you don't um, step in to prevent that, so, so yeah, that that can be be um, quite a sobering um, um, occurrence when it happens. But um, yeah, darting them out in a zoo in such a, like you said before, a bit of a rainforested kind of a environment would, I'm sure, be quite challenging. Absolutely. Um, and if you do, once you do get them asleep, then their natural sort of resting position of their hands is in sort of a flexed curved position as if you're sort of half forming a fist and if they're sort of hanging up off the top of the bars of the cage that they're in or off a branch or something they'll just quite happily just go to sleep and stay hanging there wow. and their fingers will keep them supported like that and then you've got to find a ladder and climb up and unhook the anesthetized given and <laughs> climb back down the ladder with them um, that's um Always a bit of a sort of fun logistical challenge. Unhooking <laughs> uh, humans. Yeah, yeah, so not just getting the dart into them, but then when, where do they go to sleep and then how do you retreat them for wherever that is is, is the <laughs> next challenge that comes up with that. So, um, yeah, you're constantly sort of, I guess, thinking on your feet and if plan A, B or C hasn't worked, then you've got D, E and F in reserve ready to, <laughs> to roll out whatever it is. So, um. David, thank you so much for your time, mate. That was awesome. It was a real pleasure sitting out here in the absolutely beautiful Adelaide Zoo and thank you for sharing your experiences with us. Yeah, no, it's been fun. Hopefully it's been enjoyable for you guys as well. Absolutely. Fun for me. It's certainly educational as well as enjoyable. Yeah, Beautiful. Um, Thank you. And guys, thank you for listening.